Father, we thank you for our worship this morning, for the privilege of being together, of singing together, of reading scripture together, of fellowshipping together, and now hearing the word of God together. And we ask that your spirit would have freedom to move in our hearts that we might not quench Him by our rebelliousness or our sin or ungodly desires, but that we would be teachable, trainable, transformable. And that as we hear this word, that we would be changed by it. And particularly, Father, we ask that in the hearing of this word, that you would continue to foster unity and harmony and, as Paul speaks explicitly in this passage, peace within the body. Might the things we hear this morning be for the benefit of our entire church body. Thank you, Father, for this word. Guide us, direct us, change us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If one country wants to express its appreciation for another country and to express its affinity of being in harmony with that country, they typically do the kinds of things that friends do for one another when we try and express our gratitude and our love for one another. They give gifts. But what do you give a country that has everything? Kind of like, what do you give a dad at Father's Day? That was the question that the French were trying to answer at the end of the Civil War in 1866. They wanted to do something in anticipation of the coming centennial of the American experiment to denote their harmony with America and their appreciation for what had been accomplished in the first hundred years of the American democratic project. So France commissioned Frederick Auguste Bertaldi to build a statue that would epitomize the American experiment. You know of that experiment as the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty was completed in 1886, ten years after the centennial. Funding problems, some things never change. And was dedicated by President Grover Cleveland in October of that year. The metal skeletal structure for the statue was designed and built by Alexander Gustav Eiffel. Yeah, that Eiffel. He built this thing in Paris you might have heard about. And onto that tower, Bertaldi hammered sheets of copper to denote the skin of Lady Liberty. He actually built the statue in France, disassembled it, packed it into 200 crates, and sent it to the United States that had built the foundation and pedestal on which that statue would stand. And it has stood there now for nearly 150 years, 305 feet into the air of the New York Harbor, a testimony to freedom and liberty. It is fitting that on the day that our nation recognizes its freedom and liberty as a nation, Now just five years away from our semi-quincentennial, our 250th anniversary, and yes, I had to look that word up. It's fitting that on this day we talk about 
our liberty in Christ. What does liberty for the believer in Jesus Christ look like? We have said from Romans chapter 14 that the main principle that the apostle is teaching here is that we are to use our individual freedoms as a means of preserving the corporate unity of the body. We have freedoms as individuals, certainly, but the exercise of those ought to be done in such a way that the entire church body is built up, enhanced, and matured. We've talked about principles of the believer's liberty. We've talked about how to make decisions about those liberties. We've talked about warnings against abuse of that liberty. And as Paul concludes this chapter, he's going to give us three goals for the use of our liberties. Why should we use these liberties? What should our goal be in using them? As we come to this passage, just by way of reminder, I think it's fitting to just think for a moment to remind ourselves of what a liberty is. The Apostle Paul, we have noted, does not use the word liberty in this passage, though in a parallel passage that deals with the same theme, though in a slightly different way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says in verse 9, take care that this liberty of yours, this liberty about eating food that had been offered to idols, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The word liberty is a word of, might be translated right or authority. So take care that this right that you have, this authority that you have, doesn't become a stumbling block. It's the same principle. He just doesn't use the word in Romans chapter 14. We have noted that when the apostle is talking about liberties, he is not talking about the liberty to engage in sinful practices, to engage in sin as a believer is to be a libertine. It is to abuse the grace of God that has saved us. So just by way of reminder, Romans chapter 6, following at the end of chapter 5, and the abundance of grace that has been given to us, he says in chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Let's just sin more and more and more so we get more and more and more grace. Absolutely not. Verse 2, may it never be. May that never come to fruition. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So when he's talking about liberty, he's not talking about a freedom to engage in sin. Sin is sin. Sin is off the table for the believer. Sin is what we have been freed from. It is not what we have been freed to or towards. Paul is talking about Some things that some people might believe, though, are still sinful, but God, in fact, has freed us to do them. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says in verse 1, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Um, Verse 4, concerning the things sacrificed to idols, we know there's no such thing as an idol in the world. And there is no God but one. But not, verse 7, all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol to now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So Paul says, we know there's no such thing as an idol. There's no other God. There's only one God. And so people are giving food to idols and then selling it cheaply in the marketplace. And Paul says... 
Essentially, it's cheap T-bone. Go get it and eat it. There's nothing wrong with it because all that's happened to it is it's been, it's been put in front of a piece of wood. Now put it on a piece of wood, grill it and eat it. You're free to do that. Why are you free to do that? Because there's no other idol. There's no other God. You don't have to worry about giving false allegiance to another God by eating that. The apostle is doing something similar in chapter 14 of Romans. He's talking about days of worship. Should we keep the Old Testament feast days? Should we keep the Sabbath? Is it okay to worship on Sunday? Is it wise to worship on Sunday? Should we keep the Old Testament dietary laws? Should we restrict ourselves in what we eat? And Paul's making the point in verse 14 of Romans 14 that there is nothing unclean. Notice he says, I know, I am convinced in the Lord Jesus from from the teaching that I've received from the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Jesus has declared everything's clean. You can eat it all. That's the liberty. Keith and I were talking about this at lunch the other day. And... um, He just helpfully reminded me that what's going on in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 is that that God is making definitive statements about particular things. So he's not talking here about preferences. So some people have a preference to shoot fireworks off until 12, 12, 15, 12, 30 on Saturday night in anticipation of Independence Day on Sunday morning. And others of us like to go to bed about 9.30. I won't say about who might have done what in my neighborhood last night. I'll leave that to your imagination. That's a preference, right? That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about something in which God has clearly revealed, you may do this. He's clearly addressed it. So Paul is not here talking about schooling choices, political party affiliations, or anything else like that. That's a preference. That's a topic for a different issue, or that's a topic for a different day on, on a different issue. Here he's talking about liberty where God has said, you are free. And he's addressed something very particularly. In this case, the apostle says, we have been free not to keep the Old Testament law as it relates to food and feast days. You can if you want to, but you're not obligated. You are free and and you will never sin by eating shrimp or bacon unless you eat it to excess and that's a different issue. So Paul is speaking about things that God has said, thus says the Lord in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. As we get to the end of the chapter, let me back up. At the first part of the chapter, verses 1 to 12, he's alternating, talking to both the strong and the weak. The strong say, we're free in Christ. I can eat whatever I want. I can worship on Sunday. I don't have to keep the Sabbath. I don't have to keep the feast days. That's the strong. The weak say we're still under obligation. It's still wise to maintain dietary laws. It's still wise to keep the feast days. It's still wise 
to worship on the Sabbath. Those are the weak. And Paul interplays back and forth between the strong and the weak through the first 12 verses. Starting in verse 13, middle of the verse, he particularly focuses on the strong. There's going to be a tendency for the strong to put weight and pressure and compel the weak to do what the strong are doing. You're free. And Paul has particular instructions to those. And he's continuing in that in verses 19 to 23. And he's giving us some goals. So as we think about our liberty, can I eat bacon? Am I free to wear the kind of clothing that I want? Can I wear clothing that has mixed fabrics in it? Or do I need to keep the Old Testament law regarding that as well? Paul says there are three goals that we have. Goal number one, verse 19, use your liberty to build peace in the body. Notice verse 19, so then. He's drawing a conclusion. Of everything that he's just said, now he's making a conclusion about what he's going to say, and the conclusion is a goal to have. We pursue. So then, as a conclusion, we are pursuing something in particular. We're diligently following. We're diligently seeking. What are we pursuing? Paul says we have two pursuits that really are a function of the same goal. One, we pursue the things, he says, that make for peace. We pursue the things that make for peace. Now, Paul uses this concept of peace repeatedly in his letters. Forty-three times he uses the word peace. And very often his emphasis is on the vertical relationship, the peace that we have with God. For instance, chapter 5, verse 1. 43 times in all of his letters, 10 times in this letter, in the book of Romans, he mentions peace. 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Chapter 8, verse 6, the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And both of those are focusing on the peace that we have with God and our, our harmony with him. We're, he's no longer at enmity with us. In verse 19, he's not talking about peace with God, though. He's talking about peace within the body of Christ. In fact, I think he's, I can't be dogmatic about this, but I think he's making a connection to what he has just said in verse 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is about the fruit of the Spirit as it's manifested towards one another in the body of Christ, including peace with one another. And I think he's making that same emphasis here because of our pursuit of Christ-likeness, because of the truth of what we have learned about liberty, we have as one of our primary goals to pursue peace within the flock. We're, We're interested in producing harmony and unity within the flock of Christ. This is exactly... The reality that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 that we talk, that we read earlier and he draws application of that from Ephesians 2 in Ephesians 4. With all humility, verse 2, and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, 
being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're, produ- we're pursuing harmony and unity as an overflow of the peace that we have with God. We're, we're tied together. We, we have peace with one another. We've been unified together in peace, Jew and Gentile, and that is what we're pursuing with one another. More than being interested in our liberty, Paul is interested in our peaceability. There's another reality that we are pursuing, verse 19. We pursue the things which make for peace. And a second thing that we pursue is the building up of one another. Not only should there be peace when we exercise our liberties, but the body of Christ should be built up. And that's our word that is sometimes translated edified. It's a construction term. We're caring for each other so that we are spiritually developed, matured, trained, strengthened, built up, equipped. He'll use the same word in 15.2. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. That's the word, edification, building up. And notice, notice verse 19, we pursue the building up of one another. There's going to be a temptation for the strong to say, I have everything to contribute to the weak and the weak has nothing to contribute to me. And Paul says that's not true. The strong are in the body to equip and train and help the weak and the weak are in the body To help train, equip, and build up the strong. There's a mutuality and a commonality. We both need each other. The strong have something to learn from the weak. Now what's what's the tendency of the weak? The, The tendency of the weak is to have a terribly sensitive conscience. Unusually sensitive. And the strong might have a tendency to have a diminished conscience. And, and they can gain from that. From looking and saying, is, is my conscience really as sharp as it needs to be? Am I, am I giving attention enough to my conscience? And the weak can learn from the strong as well. They, they can learn biblical truth about what our freedoms are and what God has provided for us and how He's positioned us and how we're no longer under bondage and to enjoy the things that He has given us. In both of these things, there's a commonality where we mutually build each other up. That's what we're pursuing. And Paul will say in this verse, what we pursue more than our liberty is peace with one another, the building up and the caring of one another. I am so grateful that that, frankly, has been the testimony of Grace Bible Church for a long time. How you care for one another. And I just, I can't quantify it absolutely, but I'd I'd say it would be rare that a week doesn't go by where I hear a story about how you're caring for one another. And and that's exactly the way it should be. That we're, we're concerned about how harmony is being cultivated in the body, even if that means we have to, subdue our liberties and our pursuit of our liberties. 
There's a second goal. First goal, use your liberty to build peace in the body. Second goal, verses 20 and 21, use your liberty without sinning against others. Use your liberty without sinning against others. And in verse 14, we've already noted this, Paul makes clear that we have liberties about what we can eat. Why can we eat anything? Because in the Old Testament, they couldn't eat anything, could they? We can eat anything, even what is prohibited in the Old Testament, because Mark 7:19, Christ declared all foods clean. There's nothing that can defile you anymore. And that's what the apostle says, verse 14, right? Nothing is in cl- unclean in itself. We can eat because it's all clean. In spite of that, notice what the apostle doesn't say. We pursue the building of peace, which, excuse me, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And because we have liberty, we eat whatever we want. That's what you would expect him to say, or something like that, right? We have liberty, eat. And that's not what he says. Instead, he says, and he will emphasize this in, a, in just a moment. Yeah, we have access to any kind of food because it's all clean, right? Notice verse 20, middle of the verse. All things indeed are clean. But all those foods are off limits for us if they tear down others. Notice verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God. For the sake of food. Do not. And the, 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 the emphasis of that command is they're already doing it. In other words, some are exercising their liberties in such a way that people are being harmed. People are being destroyed. And he says, stop it. Stop tearing down. And notice why he says it. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of Food in 21st century terms, Paul would say, you're tearing each other down for food? Seriously. For food? Now, I, I like food as much as the next guy. I like shrimp. I got a great shrimp fajita recipe. And it's one of the things we like to do on special occasions. I like bacon. Bacon is a regular thing that we take at our house and we don't do any of that turkey bacon stuff. I know it's healthier, but just saying. And Paul says, I know you like it. I know it's free. But are you willing to destroy somebody for a piece of bacon? It's just bacon. Why do that? For something so insignificant. Now who's being torn down? Who's being torn down? The weak, right? It's not the strong that are being torn down. The weak are being torn down. But notice how he says it. He doesn't say don't tear down others. He doesn't say don't tear down the weak. What does he say? Don't tear down the work 
of God. Isn't that interesting? In other words, Paul looks at both the strong and the weak and he says there's something that's going on in the life of the weak man in which he is being sanctified by God and God is accomplishing exactly what he wants to accomplish. And when we come in and use our liberties and we, and we tell them, oh, it's just bacon, just eat your bacon. Come on, it's good. Can't you smell it? And we don't train them and don't help their conscience ahead of time. We're not just destroying them. We're destroying God's work in their lives. And there's a sense in which in the exercise of our liberty, we are opposing ourselves to God's work. Again, for a piece of food. God is working in them. God is using their weakness to build them up and He's using their weakness to build up the body of Christ as well. In fact, He's using the weakness of the weak to minister to the strong so the strong learn to subvert their desires to serving others and caring for others more than themselves. Again, I... I do note that Paul says, middle of the verse, all things indeed are clean. It really is true. Everything is clean. You're not going to be condemned for eating what was restricted in the Old Testament. You can. And you won't be ceremonially unclean. But, you notice that, middle of verse 21, but... And that's a particularly strong adversative. They are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. In other words, if I eat bacon and someone sees me eat bacon and says, I don't think we should eat bacon. I want to keep the Old Testament law. I don't think we should eat it. But I see Pastor Terry eating it, so I'm going to eat it. It must be okay even though I think it's wrong. And I make him eat it, or I compel him to eat it. I've not just led him into sin. Notice he says, for me, that's evil. Now notice what's going on here. In the Old Testament, if you eat bacon, what happens? You've got to go get ceremonially cleansed. It's a ceremonial filthiness or dirtiness. But it's not really sin, apart from flaunting the law. There's nothing intrinsically sinful in pork. If there was... We still wouldn't be able to eat pork. That's not the problem. So if you eat pork in the Old Testament, you're ceremonially unclean. That's removed in the New Testament. You can eat bacon and not be ceremonially unclean. But if someone is compelled to eat, it's sin. And in fact, he doesn't just say sin, it's evil. It comes from the evil one. 
So we say, I just want to be clean. No, friend. When we compel others to violate their conscience and they do something that they don't understand they've been free to do, we've committed evil against them. And Paul is going to reiterate that again in verse 21. It is, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. It is good not to eat meat. It could be in verse 20, when the apostle says, all things indeed are clean, it could be that he's mimicking a saying of the strong in Rome, so that the strong say, we're just eating everything because all things are clean. That's their motto. All things are clean. Eat it all. All things are clean. All things are clean. Paul says all things indeed are clean. He turns it on its head in verse 21. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine. We would expect him to say, if it is clean, then it's good to eat meat and drink wine, isn't it? He says, no. It's not good. The word good is a word that denotes something that is intrinsically good and beautiful. So we might say it this way. It is a beautiful gift when someone restrains his liberty so that another brother is not led to sin. I'll give up my liberty so that you aren't provoked to sin against your conscience. I'm debating. I have some notes here about drinking wine. Watch for the newsletter this week. I'll talk about it in the newsletter. Um, He throws that in. It's just kind of interesting. All through this, he's just talked about eating, eating, eating. It's all about food. Um, He's made one other reference, perhaps in verse 17, to drinking wine. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. There's debate about what he's talking about there. Verse 21 is explicit about drinking wine. And he's indicating that that is a liberty that we have. Um, But in either case, whether it's food or wine, he says we don't want to do anything to make a brother stumble. Um, More news at 10 on that one. His point here, verses 20 and 21, is simply, we just don't want to tear down others. We just don't want them to harm their consciences. How do we tear down others? One way is, I've already alluded to this, but let me say it clearly, we tear down others when we compel them to go against their conscience. If someone says, Pastor, why do you eat bacon? Give them a reason. Tell them why. Unfold for them the biblical truth. But don't say something like, it's just bacon, just eat it. That's not going to help their conscience. You want to help them retrain and rethink the biblical truth 
about what God has said about the thing that they are debating whether or not they can do and whether they are free to do it. And when we, when we just say something like, it's just a beer, it's not drunkenness, just drink it. We are compelling them to go against their conscience. We're training them. Ignore your conscience. And it's always folly to ignore your conscience, even if your conscience isn't yet rightly trained. Never go against your conscience. And when we train, when we compel others to go against their conscience, we are tearing them down. We also tear down others when we refuse to give up our liberties. When we say, it's my liberty. How dare you encroach on my liberty? You are compelling me to do something that I'm free to do. Compelling me not to do something I'm free to do. How dare you? We're tearing them down. By the grace of God, I know of no example where that has happened at Grace Bible Church, but I know of examples where that has happened. And people are torn down and left in shambles. Because people are adamant. I have a right to whiskey and cigars and you can't limit it that. No, brother. You may have some kind of liberty, but you do not have the liberty to tear down others. That is not a freedom. And that's your priority. That's your goal. We think it's good when we have a liberty to say, I'm free. And Paul says, it's good when we have a liberty to say, I am so happy to lay that aside for your good. There's a third goal. Use your liberty to cultivate a clear conscience. However you use your liberties, your goal should always be to cultivate a biblically informed conscience and follow it with clarity. Notice verse 22. The faith which you have. Now, whenever Paul, not whenever, typically when Paul uses the word or the pair of words, the faith with the article, he's generally talking about the gospel. Or the content of the gospel. That which leads us to faith. But in this chapter, he's using it more broadly and more generally than that. He starts way back in verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith. Verse 2. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but the one who eats, but one who is weak eats vegetables only. And there... He's using the word faith not in reference to the gospel, but he's using it in a broad sense like he has confidence. And I think that's what the apostle is going back to now in verse 22. The confidence you have, whatever confidence you have about these liberty issues or whatever confidence you don't have, have it as your own conviction before God. In other words, have confidence about what you do. 
Have a belief about what you do and make sure that that belief stands up before God. Because there is a judge who is coming. Remember, he's talked about that earlier in the chapter, verse 10. We all will stand before the judgment seat of God. In other words, God will evaluate your use of liberty and the exercise in which you practiced your liberties and make sure that whatever conviction or whatever judgment you have about that, that it is clear before God, that your conscience is clear before God. That also means if your conscience tells you don't eat meat, then don't eat meat. Don't eat it. And then notice what he says. Happy. And actually the word there is blessed. It's that same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. Blessed is he who is poor in spirit, etc. Happy, blessed is the one who does not condemn himself in what he approves. In other words, the one who doesn't stand in judgment either from God or from his own conscience by the way he conducts himself, that person is blessed. I think the word happy is actually kind of trite. I don't think it's helpful here. I think he's, he's saying that person is blessed, blessed by God. Verse 23, I think all the way through this, from 13 to 22, he's been talking about the strong. Verse 23, I think he broadens back out again. So if you have a conviction, verse 22, about eating, then by all means eat if your conscience doesn't condemn you and if you can have a clear conscience before God. Verse 23, but the one who doubts, the one who isn't convinced, is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Again, not the faith, the gospel, but his, his eating isn't from a confidence in what he is free to do. And he's judged. He's judged, again, by God and by his own conscience. And then notice what he says at the end of the verse. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Literally, everything or all things not from faith, not from confidence. If you're not confident in it, if you're not confident that God has said, you're welcome, you're free, and you do it, it's sin. You're not just ceremonially unclean, it's sin. So don't do it. One should only do the things that he believes and is convinced that are both permissible and good for him to do. Anything else is sin. All right. Let's tile this together. Page two. You have a chart. For all of you who like pictures, I did my best. Keith is cheering me. So here we go. This actually, I put this together years ago, primarily based on 1 Corinthians 8, um, but it also is all founded in Romans 14 as well. So here's the question. As I'm thinking about my liberty issues, is the activity that I want to do a genuine issue of freedom or liberty? That's verse 14 of Romans 14, right? I know I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So has God spoken... And as God declared, it's clean, enjoy. 
You're free. You're welcome either to do it or to not do it. Either way, it's not sin. And God has clearly spoken. If the answer is no, God has not said I'm free, then it's sin. And if it's sin, don't do it. It's sin. End of story. That's the end of the discussion. Don't have to go any further. Don't have to answer any other questions. It could be that we look at the scriptural data and we say, yes, it is a liberty. I do have that freedom. Then I need to ask another question. Does this liberty genuinely glorify God? It's actually in a very similar context in 1 Corinthians 10 that the apostle says, So then, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. If you're making decisions about liberty issues, it's not just I'm free. The issue is, does it glorify God? Does it reveal His majesty? Does it reveal my submission to Him? Two ways to answer that. No. Then don't do it. Why would we do anything that doesn't bring glory and honor to God? So even if I'm free, if it doesn't glorify Him, if it doesn't, if it doesn't reflect His majesty, if people don't look at what I do and say, wow, that's the grace of God at work in your life. If it detracts from God and His character and His reputation, then don't do it. Could be that I answer the question, yes. Yeah, it does. It does glorify God, and I can do it in a way that glorifies God. Another question to answer before I move on. If I practice this liberty, will it be in violation of my conscience? Right? So this goes back to verse 5 in this chapter. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced. I've got to have confidence. That whatever choices I'm making, I'm right before God. And that's the thing that he summarizes again at the end of the chapter, verse 22. Is it a violation of my conscience? If I answer that question, yes, I don't think I'm free to do that. Yes, it violates my conscience. Then don't do it. To do it is a sin against my conscience. It could be that I say, no, I don't sin against my conscience when I do that. Ah, then you're free. Enjoy the liberty. Oh, wait a minute. One more slide. There's another caveat. But does my practice cause my brother to stumble by violating his conscience? Yes. Then brothers, love your brother more than your liberty and do not practice your freedom so that he is not tempted to violate his conscience. I never want to do anything that's going to lead my brother to go against his conscience. That's verse 13. It's the, the tenor of it runs all through this passage. But let's determine this, never to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Never want to cause them harm. Could be that I answer, no, 
it won't cause a brother to stumble, then you're free to practice the liberty. Notice you're free to practice it, but you don't have to. You may, but you're not obligated to practice it. Are there still examples of this today? Um, My guess is most of us don't stumble over shrimp and shellfish and bacon. But there are other things that might be. A number of years ago, some of you remember this. Some of you still actually make comments to me about it. When we had communion, we would have a loaf of homemade bread. I mean fresh. Just made the day before. And it smelled good. And it was light and airy. And it was so tasty. And then over the years, I would get a few questions. Well, Pastor, isn't leaven... Yeast in the Bible, a symbol for sin. So how can you use yeast or leaven in your communion elements if leaven is a symbol of sin? And um, and wasn't it, in fact, the practice of the Jews and Jesus to use crackers, hard biscuit? Yes. So how can you use real bread and saying because it tastes better than those dry and dusty crackers isn't a good answer. And so I walked through the scriptures with them and I showed them that leaven in scripture is at times used to refer to the pervasiveness of sin, but it also in scripture is used to just talk about how things progress. So in fact, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about leaven as as a parable of the way the kingdom will expand and grow with rapidity. So it's going to be pervasive. And add to that, Jesus declares all things clean in Mark Mark 7, 19. So yeast is clean, pork is clean, shellfish is clean, we can eat it all. And so it's not inherently sinful. There's nothing inherently sinful in yeast any more than there is anything inherently sinful in a pig. And so we kept using leavened bread. One day I got a phone call. A man identified himself. I don't remember his name. And he said, uh, my family and I live in Waco. We're thinking about moving to Granbury. And we came and visited your service. I've I don't remember, three weeks ago. And it was a communion Sunday. And I noticed you used leavened bread. Can you tell me why you used leavened bread? And I walked through just what I said with you a minute ago. And he, I guess, was shaking his head and said, I'm not convinced. I think it's sin. I think it's a picture of sin. And if we were to move to Granbury and we were to come to your church, I would not be able to take communion because I'm convinced that it's sin. We hung up the phone. I have no idea whether they moved to Granbury or not. 
But I started thinking a lot about that. And it wasn't very long I just said, I can't keep a brother from the table of communion. He's my brother. Should he have freedom to eat that kind of bread? Yeah. Is he convinced that he can't? Yes. I will give up my fresh, tasty, soft, delicious white bread for a dry and dusty cracker so my brother's conscience isn't defiled. And we've been using crackers ever since because of that. Why? Because I love my brother more than I love my liberty. And we will gladly give up our liberty to care for our brother. We say around here all the time, we do what we do because we want what we want. And what we want is to love our brother. And because we want to love our brother, we will gladly give up liberties if it helps our brother in his conscience. Father, thank you for this reminder. Thank you even for what you worked in this church body uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, to make us aware that this is a very real issue. It has practical ramifications. And thank you that the testimony of this church body is we will gladly give up liberties so that we can love our brothers. Might that continue to be our testimony? Might we continue to love well in that way? Even giving up things that we enjoy because we enjoy far more the approval of our Savior And we love far more the spiritual growth of our brother. So give us discernment. Give us clarity. Keep us from being flippant about this issue. And make us to be the kind of body that continues in loving our brothers well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.